Past Tuesday was Valentine's Day. How'd y'all do? Anybody in the doghouse still? I'm chiefly talking to men. Valentine's Day is an opportunity every year that we have to recount, right? To recount our love, to recall our love in the ways you love and cherish your special someone, your significant other, your spouse. It's not just a way to do that with words. It's also a way that you better do that in action, right? So this past Monday, I went and gathered some ingredients because my wife wanted me to make her dinner. It's a good thing about my wife. She's not here today, so we can talk about this. She just tells me. We're like 20 years in. So she just tells me and gives me. She still wants me to surprise her a little bit. She tells me what she'd like. And so I went Monday and gathered some ingredients. And when I cook, it's just grilling or like cereal. And so I went and gathered the ingredients on Monday. Tuesday after staff meeting, went over to the HEB here in Magnolia. And I walk in. And I walked in and like there's just a C in the floral section of flowers. And there's all these ladies with big smiles on their faces with all these flowers and corsages and all these things. And I walk in. Not only are the ladies that are really smiling and excited about Valentine's Day, there's these men. And they looked terrified. Not me. I walk into the section, the flower section, the huge thousands of flowers sitting there. And I take a left into the back corner. I take a left in the back corner and I pick up the plant. Don't laugh. I pick up the snake plant. Do you know what a snake plant is? It looks like a snake. And it's green in the middle. It has yellow on the outside and kind of stickery things. And I walk through. I have to, I'm in the back corner. You know the Magnolia H-E-B. And I'm in the back corner. I've got to walk through the rest of the floral section with all these ladies and poor guys. And I'm getting looks Okay, I've got the plant. I'm getting looks from these ladies like, man, he's in the doghouse on this one. He's not so bright. And the dudes are smiling because they're like, man, I'm going to do better than this guy. But I'm still confident. And I walk up to the counter. I get the chocolates that my wife wants. And I check out. And I go home on Tuesday afternoon. And I set that snake plant up on right there in the kitchen where my wife can come in and see it. She's not home yet. And the chocolates and the note, and I go outside and I fire up my smoker, my odor, and I'm going to get the steaks ready, the reverse seared snakes, snakes, steaks that my wife wants. <laughs> Careful. We do that in West Texas, by the way. And my wife comes in, and she comes out the back door, and she's beaming. She's beaming because I got her what she desired. I got her the snake plant. My wife's a real practical pers person. I've known for many years that if I get her flowers, she just says they're going to die. So at least get me something that's going to last. I don't know if there's any symbolism in that in love or whatever. I get her the snake plant. I get her the chocolates and I'm making her her steak. And I look into her eyes. And I recall all the ways in which I love her. I recount all the amazing things about her, and I tell her how long I've loved her and how wide I've loved her, and we had a great day. We come to the book of Ephesians this morning again, second installment. We started last week. And God is going to remind the Christ followers in Ephesus of how he loves them, 
He recounts all the ways in which he loves them. How long he's loved them on the basis of what he's loved them. What he's done to demonstrate his love for his own. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. I think it's page 976 in the Bible next to you. The words will be up front. If you've got a Bible, even better. But you're going to see God's love expressed to God's persecuted, suffering people. And the encouragement that that brings, the spiritual blessings that come, that flow from the Father and His love for His own through the Son and His forgiveness and His redemption by the Spirit who assures us of these things. This is a beautiful picture, y'all, of God's love for us, how long He's loved us how wide he's loved us, what he's done in time and space to demonstrate that love toward us. Ephesians chapter 1. It's interesting when you look at these 12 verses, verse 3 through 14. There's 12 verses, but here's the thing. It's one sentence in the Greek. There's not a period. Your high school English teacher would have taken off Grammarly would have given you a bad grade if you wrote this, but it's one long sentence where God is expressing his love and the spiritual blessings that come down from above to you and to me, who he's made his own. Let's look at it. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. This morning, why don't we stand? Stand as we read God's word. This is a Trinitarian doxology that you're meant to receive. So let me read it for us as a church this morning. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself, as sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, in him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might also be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquired possession of it to the praise of his glory. Grab a seat. Hold on tight. Twelve verses, power packed. Much to learn and much to look at in this text. Let me give you your first spiritual blessing that flows down from the Father. The first one is this. 
The father sets his love on his own first. We love because why? He first loved us. In verses 3 through 6, you see the father's love for us before the foundation of the world. He's loved us that long. If we are his own, he has loved us before the foundation of the, of the world. This is his loving election. Here's the word that everybody gets scared of, predestination. You see it twice in this text, and you're going, I don't know. Maybe I need to leave. I don't know if we can go here. His loving, electing predestination. The first thing I want to say before we really get going is this. When you think about predestination, when you think about election and uh, the doctrines of grace, it's kind of scary because there's a ton of mystery in it. There's all kinds of questions that we have about it. And yet, understand the context of this passage. What Paul is doing is he's saying, listen, this is a blessing. This is a comfort. This is God demonstrating his love for you, that he's loved you longer than anyone before you did anything good or bad. He set his love on his own. The second thing I want to say is this, and just stop as your pastor and say this. I realize in this room, as we talk about what we call election or predestination, which is this, the act of God before creation, it's right there in the text, in which he chooses people he will save, not on account of any foreseen merit, that's because it's before creation, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure, predetermining. He's determined beforehand, not just foresaw what you would do in time and space, but he set his love on you. Lots of questions, lots of mystery. But it's meant to communicate that what Paul's communicating is not confusion to the people, even though there's mysterious questions that even Paul had. If you go to Romans 9 and 10, he had tons of questions, but it didn't stop him from doing what? Praising God for his electing grace, his sovereign electing grace. So I want to stop and just say this. I don't know where you're at on this deal. When we come into a church gathering where we're opening the word, I don't know where you're at with this. This may be the first time that you've gone, wait a second, I have lots of questions. How can God love me before time began and set his love on me then and predestined me? Don't I have a choice? Didn't I in time and space believe and trust in him? I, I can tell you the day, October 22nd, 1995, when I trusted in Christ and really believed, is that real? And all kinds of other questions. Is there any human responsibility? Are we just robots? Is this fatalistic? How do I make sense of all this? And those are all good questions. And maybe you come in here this morning and you're at a place where you're going, this is all new to me. I'll tell you, it took me two years to process through this as a good little Baptist growing up in a Baptist church in, the West, in West Texas. So understand as we process things that are mysterious and hard, take the time that you need. I'll meet with you. We can talk. I can give you great resources. And so maybe you're there or maybe you're going, hey, I've tried to study this and it just doesn't make sense to me and so I just don't do it. It, it, it confuses me. I need more coffee and like Ginkoba to understand this. It's beyond me. Well, welcome to the club. You have an infinite God who certainly reveals himself to us and wants us to know him and know him truly, but you cannot know God 
fully as a finite human being. And so there are things that he does reveal to us that we scratch our heads at. Is there not? This isn't the only one, is it? The idea that God lovingly elects us before time begins. If you know Christ, it's because he loved you first. There's also people in here that just reject this idea. Reject this idea of predestination that he determines beforehand or redefines it so it's palatable to our minds. And then there's the person that is all in. There's a person who's all in, in a way, on the doctrines of grace in a good way because God reveals it to us clearly in his word, throughout his word. The whole storyline of the Bible is God setting and choosing. And you do that in humility. That's what this doctrine ought to produce because there was nothing good in you. You were dead. You were dead and you're spiritually dead. Next chapter is going to say you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That means dead. That means you have no ability. And so what the doctrine of election ought to produce in us, rightly so, is humility. But oftentimes there's also the Calvinist, the eight-point Calvinist. You know that guy? You're either in his club or her club or you're not. And if you're not in the club, we're going to beat you with a club over it. As if for 2,000 years of church history, people haven't disagreed on this. Listen, as a church, as a Reformed Baptist church, we believe this. This is part of our teaching statement. We believe in the doctrines of grace. We believe in election. We believe in predestination. But I'm not using a club on anybody. We don't want to be a church that uses the club on somebody because they can't quite get there or figure it out. There's not a humility. So maybe you, I don't know where you're at with this deal. But know that this is something that is mysterious. Know that this is something that God teaches in his word and reveals in his word. But there is much time and effort that goes into understanding of infinite God as finite creatures. And yet, I'll say all of that as your pastor up front. But I'll also say this. This is a beautiful, beautiful doctrine. If you rightly understand it and put it in its right place. Spurgeon said it this way about this idea of God's sovereignty and his electing grace and human responsibility, which is kind of the hard thing to understand because you see passage in Scripture where it says you need to believe. Spurgeon said this, and he was a Reformed Baptist. He believed in the doctrines of grace. Spurgeon said this. He was asked one time to reconcile these two truths. And he said this, I wouldn't try. Huh? I wouldn't try. I never reconcile friends. And the guy said, friends? And he said, yes, friends. In the Bible, divine sovereignty and human responsibility are not enemies. They are not uneasy neighbors. They are not in an endless state of cold war with one another. They are friends. And they work together. There's mystery here. There's tension here. I can't get, rationally speaking, my mind around all of election and all the implications of it. I can't. I've tried for 23 or 4 years. But understand something. If you are an Orthodox Christian, you believe things and embrace things that I don't think any of us can fully understand. L- let me give you some examples. There are other things in Scripture. 
Do you fully understand the divinity of Jesus, that he's 100% God and 100% man? How does his humanity and deity fully go together? Do you understand all the intricacies of that? All of it? No. But you embrace it as God's truth. Do you understand the Trinity? How God is one and three persons? That's the way the Bible That's the way God reveals himself to us. He's one, and yet he's three. Do you understand all the intricacies of that? But you embrace it if you know God because you believe the word of God shares that. Do you you understand the, the mysteries of the virgin birth? You try wrapping your mind around the virgin birth? But you embrace it. Have you tried wrapping your mind around the creation of the world, how God spoke all things into existence out of nothing. You got that figured out? How he formed the world and then he filled it? You figured every detail out? Let me ask you this. Have you figured out every detail of the cross of Christ and how you and me, sinners in need of his grace, How a holy God could send his son to a cross, perfect son of God, to a cross and die in our place. You figured all the details of that out. No, but you embrace it and you believe it and you trust in it. Right? Election is that way. There's this paradox to go, okay, God, you're sovereign, you're providential over all things. This whole thing started before time. You've worked that out. You've put your favor on your own. And then in time and space, the Bible says what? It says that we've, the gospel call comes to us. That somebody's got to share the gospel, right? That's what Romans 10 says. How will they believe unless somebody has told them? That's our role. That's our job as believers, to share the gospel. And at some point in your life, in real time and real space, what happened? You believed, You trusted in Christ. You responded to the gospel call. You believed. And in that moment and after that, you're going, well, I trusted in Jesus. And you did. In time and space, you confessed your sin. You repented of your sins. And you believed. But guess what? It didn't start with you. You're dead, remember? You're dead in your trespasses of sin. God had to wake you up through his spirit and make you alive. And then... Conversion happens, and he gives you his spirit, and it gives you power to live this Christian life and persevere. That's not easy. And then you die. And then what happens? He glorifies you. That's the picture. That's the timeline. I lost my place. Here's what we do with this. We don't deny. We don't deny the clear teaching of Scripture because we can't fully understand it. We don't do it with this any more than we don't do it with other doctrines. Here's what we do. We embrace it. Not only do we, ought we embrace it, even though it's a mystery. It was a mystery to Paul. Do you notice what he does in verse 6? He gives God praise. You see that? He gives him praise for something he doesn't fully understand, but he fully receives as a blessing that flows down from 
the Father. I want to show you a few other passages here. Because you might go, well, that's just one passage. We're going we're gonna to look at, what about the rest of the Bible? Acts 13, 48. They're preaching the gospel to the Jews. They come to the Jews first, and the Jews continue to reject the gospel. And then Paul, his mission is to go to the Gentiles. Acts 13, 48. He says this, and when, and when the Gentiles heard this and heard that they would receive the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. These are Luke's words, the apostle Luke, and as many who were what? Appointed to eternal life believed. Hmm. Appointed. Appointed by God. 2 Timothy 1.9 says this, God who saved us and called us, remember last week we talked about Paul's calling where he was going one direction and Jesus met him on Damascus Road and he went a different direction. He was a Christian, he was a terrorist to Christians, and then he became one, not because he was so smart, because God called him. 2 Timothy 1.9, God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ. When? Before, can't leave this out, before the ages began, blow your mind. Romans 8.28, you know this passage but do you know 29 and 30? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, and just so we're clear, the idea of foreknowledge is not just knowing things. God certainly knows things that you will do in the future. But foreknowledge is knowing you. All the way through the scripture, foreknowledge is about knowing people, that God knows you. It's, rela- it's a relational term. For those he foreknew, their person, he also predestined, he determined to be what? Why? To be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those who he predestined, he also called, blowing your mind yet? And those whom he called, he also justified, meaning he made right before God. Those he justified, he glorified, 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, and 5. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because of our gospel that came to you, not only in word, but also in power in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Second Thessalonians, I'm just going to pepper you with this. I want you to see it through the scriptures. Second Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14. But we ought always give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God, here it is again, he chose you. And he, as first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. When you open the words, the first words of Scripture in the book of Genesis, this is what you see. You see God sovereignly choosing and man responding. You see it with the calling of Abraham. Why did he call Abram? Abram was an idol worshiper. He didn't see anything good in this guy. And looked, look at his life. He kept hiding behind his wife, kept his idols. Wasn't the greatest guy. Yet God chose him. The nation Israel. Why Israel? I mean, look at their history. Jacob over Esau. Why? Jacob was a deceiver. Esau on paper was way better. This is God's sovereign love. And there's tons of questions we got about that. Why? Because it's not based on merit. It's not because you're good looking. Y'all are good looking. All right? It's not because you're smart or not smart. It's not because you're good. You take out your trash and you take out your neighbor's trash. It's not about that. 
There are plenty of people walking around that don't know Jesus that are way better people than you and me. It's his love. He chose to set on us. And lest we look at that and go, that doesn't make sense. I have a problem with God. Here's the reality. The big picture reality is this. There aren't multiple groups of people in the world. Good, bad, really bad, indifferent. There aren't like buckets of different people in the world. Because of the fall, the Bible says that we are dead at our trespasses and sins. We're all in one bucket. It's one. Imagine that as a lake, if you will. We're all in a lake and we're not swimming in our sin. We're not swimming with a life jacket. We're at the bottom of the lake, bound in chains. That's, That's the Bible's picture. We're in bondage to our sin without Christ. All of us, every single person, spiritually speaking, is dead. And so if God chooses to pull anyone out of that place, Is that him being unfair or is that him being merciful? Is that him being gracious? And I don't have all the answers as to why at all. But this is the God that we know and serve. But look at the purpose in verse 4 and 5. You'll see it in other places in Scripture too. The purpose of election. There's two purposes in this text of election. His loving election, sanctification, and sonship. Do you see it? In verse 4, why? Why would he do that? His love, spiritual blessing, also to sanctify us, to set us apart, to help us be without blemish and be holy. If we're dead in our trespasses and sins, we don't have the ability to do anything. Not to choose him, also not to follow him. So he sets us apart without blemish. Not only that, and catch this, this is incredible. The way this happens is in Christ. You see this phrase all the way through this passage, in him, in Christ. The Father's electing in Christ, through Christ. Here's the thing. Sonship. We sang about adoption. That's what we're talking about. He's adopted us into his family. We don't belong. Who does belong? For eternity, the Son, Jesus. Begotten natural son forever. And here's what God is saying here. Here's what this text is saying. Jesus is a natural son. You're not a natural son of the father, but he's adopted you into his family and he treats you like he treats Jesus. You're adopted into his family. You're one of his. He's treating you like his own son. That's what happens in adoption is that a father and parents take a child that's not their own and brings them in to their own family and loves them as their own. But adoptive kids often have challenges. I'm an adoptive dad. I'm an adoptive father. I have a son who we've adopted And you know one of his struggles? There's a number of them, but one of them is that he belongs. Do I really belong? And every week, you belong. You're one of us. You're a Thornton. We love you. But what about when I do this? What about when I do that? 
You're part of the family. We had some friends down the street when we lived in Spring Branch. Great family. Mom and dad couldn't have kids. They were teachers. They loved kids. And they decided to go through the foster and adopt process. And they got three kids. All at once. And I remember playing on the street. We had a, we had a cul-de-sac street in Spring Branch, right there off Beltway 8, I-10, Hammerley area. And uh, had about 15 homes on our dead-end street. Dead-ended into uh, a park. And out of the 15 homes, there's like 13 of the homes on that street, right, William, had kids like our kids' age when they were little. And so here comes these, this foster adopt three kids onto the street. We're all playing one day, and it's been a couple of months. And these three kids have been through the foster system. They'd been to home, to home, to home, to home. But our friends were adopting them, but it's foster to adopt. And one of the youngest, Dusty. One day, Dusty did something. He did something, and he knew he was going to be in trouble. You know how kids, like, some, they're sad about it? He wasn't just sad about it. He was hysterical. He was crying. And his dad, I brought his dad over. And we sat down, and they're like, Dusty, it's going to be all right. You messed up. And he said this. Don't send us away because of what I did. Because his experience, at least in his little mind, was that the other places rejected us and sent us away because of my behavior, because of our behavior, and we don't have a home. And I'll never forget it. His dad, his dad looked at him and said, you're not going anywhere. We love you. You're ours. How do you do with being an adopted son and daughter of God the Father who has set his love on you? Not because you're so good and so great and you behave so perfectly. He set his love on you. His own pleasure Love. When our kids were little, see if I can get this right. It's been a while. When our kids were little, and we'd rock them to sleep, we'd sing this little nursery rhyme to them. I would sing this to even my big, strong 16-year-old now, not now, but when he was little, as a father. I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, what's the last line? My baby you'll be. That's right. Listen, God the Father has loved you forever. If you know him, if you're his own, he loves you for always. And unlike us, I'm going to die. You're going to die. The eternal Father in heaven has set his love on you forever and for always. You're his. That is something to receive as a loving, that's better than any Valentine card, y'all, as his love toward us. Nobody loved you more or longer than God the Father. 
He set his love on you in spite of you. And Paul's response ought to be our response. As mysterious as it is, and as much tension, rational tension, if you're a rational, linear thinker as it is, don't come to this passage ever again and go, that's the topic, I don't want to think about it. Come to this passage and receive and remember God's love for you. That's what he's saying. That's what he's telling us. Well, man, I got one point. I didn't know how I was going to do this. Embrace the beautiful mystery of this truth. Let's keep working here. Verse 7 through 12. Verse 7 through 12 is all about the Son. It was about the Father and His love for us. Verse 7 through 12, if you look at it with me again, it's all about the redemption, the rescue and the forgiveness of the Son, of Jesus the Son. And how has he done it? By his lavish grace. We needed his lavish grace because we ain't got any ability to love him. He's loved us in spite of us. So he backed the truck of his grace up, and he lavished it upon us through the Son. Your second thought is the Son rescues and forgives his own by his grace the idea of redemption, there's so many words in here to under, unpack. It's the picture of slaves on a slave ship in chains at their own doing, okay? Unlike your picture and my picture of a slave ship, people don't deserve it. These are people who deserved it. A slave ship. And someone showing up and paying the ransom for a slave. Someone, or if you, if you like this better, someone in jail who deserve to be there. This is what the Son has done through His blood that we talked about earlier, that we sang about earlier. That's redemption, Him buying us back as undeserved people. And what's the cost of it? The cost is His blood. Do you see it there? The blood of Christ to pay our debt, our sins, and He forgives us. He sets us free from our trespasses, we don't deserve it. How? The riches of his grace that he lavished upon us. And here's the deal. That was a mystery. That's what this text is saying. It was a mystery. Mystery is something that one time wasn't known and now is known. That's God's plan. Mark 10.45 says it this way. The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and do what? Give his life as a, what's the word? Ransom for many. He died in your place. He bought your ransom. See, the, the son rescues and forgives. And do you see the response here? The response again is worship and praise. You think about the people that you look up to and the people that you're willing to let lead you. Usually they're the people who have done the work. They're the people who, not the people who sit in the ivory tower, but the, the people who have served, who have led through their own example. And this is what Jesus has done. Maybe you know this story of Robert the Bruce, the Scot, the king of Scots. Maybe Braveheart comes to mind. But after Braveheart, historically speaking, Robert the Bruce got his act together. 
I don't think historically it worked that way anyway. The king of Scots, and he fought a battle of Bannockburn against Edward II, the king of England. See, England was brutal to the Scots. Completely brutal. And the Scots wanted their freedom, but they never beat, beat them in a battle. And yet, in 1314, Robert the Bruce led them in the battle. The day before the battle, Robert the Bruce in a pitched battle, which they'd never won with England. Robert the Bruce rode out into the middle of the battlefield on a little colt. And one of the main guys in England had a massive horse and he rides out. He's like, I'm going to take him out. I'm going to take Robert the Bruce out before this thing even gets going. And all the Scots are yelling at Robert the Bruce, the king of Scots, to come back, come back. And he doesn't do it. As the story goes, he stops. And the man from England with his javelin is coming. And he's got height over him. He's got everything working for him to kill Robert the Bruce right there before the battle begins. And as his horse is coming, Robert the Bruce steps to the side, turns, throws his axe, and kills the guy. England, the big boys, they've never defeated them. And here's the leader of the Scots leading his people, and he comes back to cheers. And that night, rather than the Scots being scared and the Scots wondering what was going to happen the next day, they had confidence. And the next day, they go out and defeat the English, which they'd never done. And that started the chain reaction for their freedom to come. This is what a picture of the leader before you who's paid for your sins, who's died on a cross for you. He's the guy who's followable. He's the guy who has gone before you and served you and loved you and died on a cross for you. This brings us hope. So we see the father's electing, adopting love. We see his rescue, the son's rescue by his lavish grace. But what about the spirit? This is a Trinitarian doxology. The spirit does this. It assures us of our own inheritance. Notice something, though. If you have challenges with this idea of election, look at verse 13. In time and space, something happens to people when they come to faith in him. You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you believed in him. So is there human responsibility in time and space for people to believe when the gospel comes calling? Absolutely. There's responsibility. That's what you see here. An example of that would be a woman named Lydia. Go look it up. Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, a woman named Lydia, she had basically been a proselyte. She was from Asia, a seller of purple fabrics. And she comes to Philippi to sell those fabrics. And the text says that she was a worshiper of God. That doesn't mean that she was a believer in Jesus. It meant she was basically a proselyte Jew who was learning about the God of heaven. And Paul comes down to the river because that's where ladies had to go. They couldn't go into the temple. And he would frequently come to the river and preach the gospel to the ladies who were worshiping there. And the text in Acts 16 says this. It says that God opened Lydia's heart to pay attention to the word of Paul, to hear the gospel message, and she believed. 
this is how the gospel works. Maybe you're like me going, hey, October 22nd, 1995, I came to know Christ in real time, in real space. That was a real decision. And I would say, yes. Did it start with you? No, it started in eternity past. And God worked in your heart and opened your heart and you believed. You catch that? You're like, huh? He loved you first. And look at the Spirit's work in verse 13 here. In verse 13, in him, in Christ, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you believed in him. And look, look what happens at conversion. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, the guarantee of our inheritance. This is really cool. In Roman times, they would take wax. And let's say you had a document, a proof document. They would take wax, and they would take a signet Roman ring, and they would stamp it. They would seal the document saying, this is proof. You can take this before anybody, and this is proof. Like you might do as a guarantee, like with your house, the deed of your house. This was a seal. This text is saying, no, the Holy Spirit is a seal. It's the proof. It's the evidence of your inheritance, not just now, but in the future. And then it says that the Spirit is a promised guarantee. Think about the down payment on your first house or second house or fifth house. The guarantee, the earnest money. It's the good deposit that guarantees you the home that you're going to pay. This is what God has done with his spirit. He said, here, here's the proof. Here, you've got an inheritance coming one day in heaven, and here's the good deposit, the spirit living within you, convicting you, caring for you. See, the Holy Spirit assures us of our future inheritance. It's not in this text, but it does so much more. The Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, is the power of the Christian life. And so third, your Spirit assures us of our inheritance. It's the assurance of our pardon. Notice something. In the Father's love, in the Son's forgiveness, with the Spirit's assurance, at every one of those sections, what is Paul's response? His response is, to the praise of his glorious grace. To the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. At every section, this is what you see. Can I ask you a question? What is the lens by which you look through life? Do you look through life and just honest. You may know on paper, you're not in the center. You know that God is in the center. Specifically, the person and work of Christ ought to be in the center of your life. But functionally speaking, who's in the center of your life? Oftentimes, it's us, isn't it? And when we come to these difficult doctrines, like election, it becomes really difficult especially if we put ourselves in the center. This text is reminding us that it's not us who's in the center of God's plan. Even though we are loved, we are cared for, we are valued by God, in God's providential sovereign plan, we are not in the epicenter. 
He's, we are part of his plan, but God is in the center of his own plan. You see it all the way through Scripture. He's in the middle of his own plan, and surely he is about redeeming us through his Son, but specifically, the Son is in the center. You can't escape it in this text, in Christ, in him, in him, in him, in Christ. It's all over it. It's very difficult to live to the praise of his glorious grace and believe in his electing love and realize the depth of Christ's love for us and the Spirit's assurance for us if we are in the center. Think of it like this. Up until about the 1540s, humans believed scientifically that we were literally in the center of the universe. Ptolemy's, if you've studied, some of the kids can help us out. It's been a long time, maybe. Ptolemy's findings. And so you would take your family out and look at the stars and say, we're in the center. And then a guy came along. Remember his name? Nicholas Copernicus. Remember that guy? He came along with his maps. He came along with his gadgets. He came along with a lot of questions. Why do the seasons change? Why do some stars appear in day and others at night? How far do ships sail until they fall off the edge of the earth? And one day, Copernicus looked up to the heavens and he pointed at the sun with people around him and he said, behold, the center of it all. And the king locked him up and the church kicked him out. It's like he called the Pope a Baptist or something. And for about half a century, people continued to deny that the sun was the center of the universe. And Gal Galileo came along. Finally, people realized the sun was in the center, that it wasn't them. But here's the thing. We don't like demotions. We don't. We want to be in the center. But the truth of the matter is this. The Son of God is in the center. He's worthy of praise. Perhaps our role is a little different. Perhaps our role is more like the moon. What do you know about the moon? You see, the moon, what does it do? It generates, really, in and of itself, it generates no light. Apart from the sun, the moon is nothing more than a pitch black rock. But properly positioned, the moon beams. The moon reflects the greater light. The moon as at peace with her place, as a roll of a soft light that touches a dark earth. I wonder what would happen if in my life and yours, we accepted the role of sun reflectors. God has loved you 
through his son. He set his love on you. The father has set his love on you from eternity past through the son, has adopted you into his family. And for that, we give him praise. The son has rescued you, has redeemed you, has forgiven you, has given you an inheritance that is waiting for us in heaven someday. As we close, I wonder if the doxology that we often sing isn't appropriate. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures below. Praise Him, all ye heavenly hosts. Praise Him, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Let me pray.